This week, we talk highlights from summer camp. In the news segment, a hacker capitalizes on configuration mistakes, bounties become bigger, XXE and PHP, and more. Stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. False positives suck. With so many mobile apps to test, how much time will you waste on false positives? Eliminate them today with NowSecure. Only NowSecure automates static, dynamic, and interactive testing on real Android and iOS devices. Now you get speed, accuracy, and efficiency for DevOps, plus the broadest coverage of security, compliance, and privacy issues. Why waste time on false positives? Visit securityweekly.com forward slash NowSecure to learn how to scale your mobile app sec testing with NowSecure. Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies, protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week. Signal Sciences NextGen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps toolchain. Signal Sciences, demand more from your WAF. Learn more at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Welcome to Application Security Weekly. This is episode 72, recorded August 12th, 2019. I'm your host, Mike Shima, and I'm here with Matt Alderman. Hey, Matt. Happy Monday. I survived the week. So you did. It looks like maybe John didn't. We don't have John with us this week. But um, I think we can still forge ahead, and we'll hope that John isn't still arguing about open containers in Vegas, because um, I know how he loves his security there. <clears throat> Register for our upcoming webcasts with Signal Sciences by going to securityweekly.com webcasts. If you have missed any of our previously recorded webcasts, you can find our on-demand library at securityweekly.com on-demand. Some of you told us that you are overwhelmed by the amount of content we distribute. To help you get selected topics you're interested in, join our new listener interest list. Sign up for a list and select your interests by visiting securityweekly.com slash subscribe and clicking the button to join the list. You can also now submit your suggestions for guests in our recently released guest suggestion form. Go to securityweekly.com slash guests and enter your suggestions. So, Matt, last week, hordes of bugs and bug hunters descended on Vegas for what's become known as Hacker Summer Camp. It's a week of B-sides, Black Hat, Diana Initiative, DEF CON, um, tons of parties, tons of vendor parties, tons of other smaller social events, and uh, tons of things that I know kept you and the rest of the Security Weekly staff pretty busy. So um, any, what would you like to dive in from, from highlights of the week that you managed to survive? Well, I so I went to Vegas and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. It's actually not a lousy <laughs> T-shirt. I had to thank Extra Hop for the little gamification of Black Hat. Uh, two charities, uh, they donated some money to two great charities. It was the Red Team versus Blue Team. Red Team won, of course, because they hacked the game. That's that's basically what we decided. That's why the Red Team won. Uh, and Extra Hop donated ten thousand dollars to Hackers for Charity. And two thousand dollars 
to code.org, which I think is just fantastic. So I want to thank the extra hop team, uh, for the sponsorship, for those donations. It was uh, a really interesting part of black hat as Paul and I were running around doing, uh, interviews for, for almost the whole week. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, I had to, I had to do the plug. So I wore the t-shirt today because it's, it's probably one of the few things I brought home from Vegas. <laughs> no, that's a fantastic shout out. And it's pretty cool to see, too, that a handful of vendors are starting to go that route of, hey, well, rather than give out swag that in T-shirts that nobody's going to wear um, or will want to wear or just swag that they're going to throw away, they started to say, hey, why don't we just like give some money to a charity? Um, so, yeah, so that, that's a great trend and hopefully it only gets bigger. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, Tenable did this a couple of years ago at Black Hat when we did the level up theme. Uh, and it worked really well at Black Hat for those sponsors that are out there. Gamification of something like Black Hat actually works because I think the audience makes it interesting, right? And Extra Hop was really happy with the engagement. It really created some interesting buzz, a lot of social media push during the week. But they did it for great causes. Hackers for Charity could not do their auction last year at DerbyCon because of some of the hotel restrictions. Getting that extra $10,000 really helps them out. You know, code.org and the ability to help people uh, do better coding and secure code. Also, a very great cause for this show. And so, it, I, I just hats off to them. They approached us and said, Would we be interested? We said, Absolutely. You know, and, and we definitely uh, had some fun with it uh, up in the suite. That's awesome. So, definitely thumbs up for wearing the shirt and giving them a plug. Um, and the so, yeah, go ahead. I mean, the other thing is, for people who don't know, we did 28 micro interviews. I did 14. Paul did 14 over the two days of Black Hat. We actually did two live shows. We did a Paul Security Weekly and an Enterprise Security Weekly from the suite. And then I did another 10 interviews at DEF CON, two at Blue Team Village on Friday and eight at Social Engineer Village on Saturday. And all that content will come on to the different programs over the next few weeks. I, I think the team estimated we did something like 15 hours of recording in four days. It's a lot of content and we'll get that back out. But the interesting thing for me is I did a lot of interviews, Mike, on application security. We're seeing a lot more interest and a lot more sponsors talking about the AppSec problem. We're going to talk about some of the issues on the next segment with news, but we were talking about API security. We're talking about mobile app security. We're talking about, you know, what do we need to do for DevSecOps to make the sec part of DevSecOps really work? I mean, some really great content that came out of some of those interview segments. Like I said, a lot of that will go to Enterprise Security Weekly, but I think some really good cross potential content for this show just because we are seeing a lot more interest in the AppSec stuff. That's really cool and absolutely looking forward to lot, seeing a lot of that content. And what also struck me, and I think maybe you can give a little bit of a teaser of some of the interviews you had, but I think a lot of the conversations on the AppSec side have moved away from this is a really cool bug or here is another really cool bug into more of the techniques for finding in terms of here's fuzzing or approaches or more how particular bugs fit into a larger threat model, meaning how are they being impacted by sandboxing? How are they being impacted in either positive or um, not so positive ways by better architectures of these environments? And I think that's maybe a little bit what you're kind of teasing out there, talking about API security. Yeah, I mean, 
as we all know, as we move away from these big monolithic single language applications, which were part of a waterfall approach, which, you know, went through months and months of coding and testing before they went out to a highly distributed application, microservice based architectures, leveraging containers, cloud, multi-cloud hybrid. We've created a lot of complexity with our applications and it's not necessarily about the bug per se. Now, look, bugs are still important. Don't get me wrong. But if we chase the bug, we're going to forget about some of the other stuff that's going to impact us. And, and some of the news stories I think are relevant to this point. We're spinning up architectures and infrastructure with code. How are we validating that code and the configuration of that code, also known as the infrastructure, prior to spinning it up and getting it out there? Because what we're seeing now, I think, is a lot more misconfiguration than vulner traditional vulnerabilities or bugs that are creating breaches. And so if we only focus on the bug and the bug bounty side and, and the next zero-day vulnerability, we're missing a whole bunch of other stuff. That only gets exacerbated by the fact that we have all these APIs communicating in this very diverse environment. Some people don't even know where those endpoints are, let alone how they're communicating, how they're authenticating for communication, how we're dealing with all the credentials for our service accounts and all these APIs to communicate. This is a lot of the stuff we talked about in these micro interviews across multiple vendors is all these pieces that need to be addressed in this really, really complex application environment. And hopefully one of the themes that will also come out there is that the you know APIs are also absolutely part of that software, that, that supply chain um, uh, problem as well. I think that was one of the other, I think it was Microsoft was talking about supply chain risks. And they were focusing a lot on the people aspect. Not so much that, of course, you know, people maybe will make mistakes, but who, what is the development environment? What are the security practices of the orgs building these APIs? So just as you're saying, we're tying a bunch of APIs together, but we're actually not necessarily even doing it within our own microservices systems. We're talking to other companies' systems. And there's a lot of trust without a greater sense of confidence in that trust, meaning how do we know, we know what we're talking in terms of the API, it's TLS configuration, the data going in, the data coming out. But what if we're storing data behind that API? How is that data being protected? And it just really goes back to those classic ideas of supply chain risk and people, meaning can we actually move the whole industry onto better uh, like zero trust models, beyond corp style models, where uh, you're locking down developer endpoints, customer representative endpoints, things like that. So I think these are a lot of themes that at least I was paying attention to on some of the stuff that stood out to me. We talked a little bit about uh, the software bill of materials, which the federal government's trying to push. And that makes a lot of sense to understand where the source is coming from, understanding all the components of an application. We're not seeing a lot of adoption of the software bill of materials yet. And that's a supply chain issue I think we have to continue to focus on in the industry. But you're seeing a little bit. One of the interviews I did was on this theme of zero trust. And, and I think it's interesting because when people think zero trust, they think network, they think endpoint, they think identity. Typically is where you think of zero trust. And zero trust networking was kind of the base for a long, long time. I actually did an interview around zero trust 
more from an application microsegmentation. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a really interesting concept for us in the application space because if each of those components of the application had a zero trust model and you had to create a trust relationship between what communicates to what, that now allows us to monitor for behavior and then block malicious behavior in these applications. That's this kind of new theme that's coming. And the way I describe it, a lot of people you know, talk about identity as the perimeter. It is, but I think it's the identity and the interaction with the application that really is that perimeter. Can this user or service account talk to this application or this piece of code? Yes or no. And if it can, let it go through. If it can't, then block it. And that's a level of uh, kind of evolving technology we haven't seen before because we always try to do this stuff at the network or at the endpoint layer. Now people are starting to take that up the stack a little higher to the identity and the actual application and code. And I think that's where we're going to continue to see some improvements. And that's really interesting because I think it speaks a lot to that. Um, if we go back and look at the parallel of like the AV community, the idea that signatures or just like a static identity um, is, you know, old school. It's, it, it doesn't scale very well and it's easy, more easily bypassed as opposed to behavioral approaches. They're saying, what is this app actually doing as opposed to how did it attest its identity as. And um, that's really interesting because, yeah, I think I don't typically um, approach that idea of zero trust from the service to service identity, but it totally makes sense because you really want, that's, that's where a lot of the data, that, that's where data can be exfiltrated. You don't have, you either can get access by a developer's credentials or somebody else's compromised credentials and you assume their identity or you just compromise some misconfiguration, which is the classic case, um, and you pull data out of some service that you know wasn't intended to leak so much data. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting in this market now is th- this move to behavior-based stuff. But behavior is not easy. It's not hard, it's not easy to understand what normal behavior looks like. But if you're using a zero trust approach to behavior whitelisting good activity, now you can really start to look at some malicious behavior. Look, maybe maybe it has to go through. Maybe you have to alert on it for a while before you realize to block it. But I think that's the next evolution of where we're going. That's where the machine learning algorithms and some of the AI algorithms that everybody talks about but doesn't really understand how it's going to help us, potential is where that helps us. And if we can do that effectively, then we can protect some of these environments that are really complex in a better way. So we'll see where this technology goes, but definitely some really interesting emerging stuff in the space. Yeah, very cool. And I think we talked, it was either last week or, two, or the, the last episode about uh, Microsoft moving to this space and how they were taking this behavior-based approach. But rather than focusing on a combination of indicators of good software and indicators of bad software by combining the two, they just said, we're only gonna look for indicators of malicious software. And that made it harder for adversaries to work against their ML models, which is a pretty you know, cool approach to, to, that, type of, um, to, to that type of thing. And I think at um, WWDC uh, back in June, Apple had announced a, a uh, detection for live person, or basically, is this a human interacting with their iPhone? And um, the intent there, I think, is more about how can they tamp down on things like 
fraud that may be put fraud or remote access tools that are taking over and I like a compromised iPhone and clicking on send, you know, clicking on transactions, clicking on buttons, as opposed to a human is actually doing it. Um, so we're seeing this throughout the stack too. this whole this whole um, movement into looking at behavior. So that, that those that those are definitely a uh, that's definitely a uh, interview I'm looking forward to. Uh, yeah, agreed. Now, did you get on the floor much at Black? I did not. I, I was down there, I think, like 45 minutes total in two days. I went to the Extra Hop booth twice. I stopped at one other booth, said hi to a couple people, and that was it. So I didn't get a chance to walk the floor this year. I'm just curious, Mike, if you got a chance to walk the flo floor, and were there some interesting themes out there that you noticed? So I didn't get the chance to walk the floor too much because unfortunately I got there for um, half of half of Black Hat. But I did go and grill a bunch of my friends and coworkers who were there just to get a sense of what was going on. And there was a lot of hardware. Um, I guess we'll say relatively speaking, a lot more about hardware focus. And part of that we can see and kind of guess that you know IoT has become or a big thing for last couple years, of course, but also more a focus on um, mobile and mobile chips rather than at the software stack. So one of the things that was really cool to see was um, Apple begin to perhaps slowly, but we can say, I think surely, open up about its transparency, about what, you know, what they're doing inside their um, phones, not only at the iOS layer, but within their chipsets and building trust models for secure boot. So that type of aspect was really neat and seeing more about a focus on hardware that's looking at more about the high-end devices rather than just really small, cheap IoT kit that are you kind of can roll your eyes at and kind of shrug and say, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's going to have some vulnerabilities in it. Um, and I think, what was the other thing? Look, looking through a couple of notes that I made too, is um, uh, also still, I think, uh, protocols are still pretty interesting. So still people poking around Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, um, whatever they can from remotely exploitable vulnerabilities. Because of course, that, those are what are the most interesting as well as the most impactful. So I think kind of at a, at a glance, those were a bunch of things that I would call out that came across my radar. Uh, interesting, that's great. <clears throat> like I said, I didn't see a lot of news items this week. I think the biggest news item was semantic sale to Broadcom. Um, I'm sure there were a bunch of product announcements I just haven't gotten through yet, having only been home for a couple days. Yeah, I think, I don't know if maybe all the, the product announcements get thrown over to RSA and then Black Hat gets in more of the like program or maybe like community outreach type of announcements. But yeah, you're right. I didn't see anything too big on the, on the business side, I think. No, which is surprising. I, I mean, granted, this is more of a research conference, and you would expect some of that research to come out, which it do, it did and does. And then you see a lot of that over at DEF CON on, on Friday and Saturday in the different villages. You know, there's a lot of activity going on over there for, for people who have not gone over there. But last year, I just I, – I, I recall more product announcements along with it. Uh, and a couple came out the week before, but like I said, I didn't see a lot of news on product stuff uh, this week when we were at Black Hat. Yeah, and I wonder, it's not like we've been without security product news through the year, too, which I think is good. But um, we've also seen, like, 
some of the big players, like I mentioned Apple, WWDC, Google has their own events, AWS has their own events. Um, and, and we've seen actually a lot of very security focused and product announcements on their services or their products um, at those events. So I just kind of wonder, um, will this also be a kind of maybe a good thing for Black Hat and get, let it um, come around to refocusing on just some really good forward thinking research? Let's hope so. For the for the future of the conference, actually, I'm worried that Black Hat's getting a little too commercial. And if it gets too commercial, I'm afraid that we lose some of the research aspects of the conference. So let's hope it can focus more on the research side and keep that conference together. Hope so. And there were some cool, speaking of research, just um, there were two really cool things, um, which also, hopefully everybody updated your phone before you went to Black Hat, um, or you've at least updated it by now, or and you have automatic updates turned on, because there were a bunch of presentations around um, remote attacks against iOS, uh, essentially, uh, you know, a, a what was called commonly the, the zero click or no user interaction, um, receiving a SMS that can essentially leak memory space from the um, from your iMessages. Um, and well, th there was some neat research that was perhaps, you know, not as practical, but about attacking uh, Face ID. But what was neat here is that the researchers, I think this was Tencent Labs, if I remember correctly, hope I am, um, but they were demonstrating attacks against the algorithm itself and how it implements its liveness check for Face ID. Um, and essentially they figured out that you can put on, you know, get a pair of glasses, and here are is some you know some white cardboard around the eyes and a little bit of a white dot you know piece of white paper in the middle for the pupil and that was a way to start to weaken the algorithm's uh, mechanism uh, of doing the liveness check basically meaning is it staring at an actual human versus a paper printout of, of a human as a, and that would be the way to bypass um, the app so there was a lot of really cool. Um, uh, really deep technical research going on and was also really cool to see them taking advantage and attacking algorithms as well. And that's an area where I hope we do see a lot more of this adversarial um, uh, approaches demonstrated rather than just be kind of bandied about or talked about as um, possibilities. Interesting. Cool research. And um, one other thing that was there, there was actually going back to the ideas of themes, um, you know, start off with uh, Dino Dizovi's keynote, um, which really boiled down to people are important to DevOps and DevSecOps. And I think that is um, definitely not a controversial theme. If anything, it's one of those things that's probably harder to actually adopt in practice because it takes a lot of effort. Um, it takes a lot of a cultural shift. But there was also another um, presentation from uh, Netflix, which again is uh, is one of the uh, usual suspects that I often refer to on the podcast. Um, but this was also talking about um, dealing with software dependencies, supply chain, and it was talking about how to scale the process and use automation. But a lot of the gist of the presentation was really about people and processes. It wasn't so much here is the one tool that solves everything. It was more of here is a tool that helps our security team have a better triage process that starts with the CVSS score, but then figures out is this actually a internet facing or internal facing app? Is it 
under active exploitation, meaning there is anything from, you know, exploit code publicly available or threat intel service um, sources are indicating as being attacked, as well as can this actual vulnerability be exploited? Or is this just sitting in some dead code that the app actually isn't exercising? And so again, those are all types of things that take people to understand and people to appreciate. Um, so with all the talk of automation with a lot of tools, I don't think we're going to get rid of those security teams, that security analysis and security insight, but hopefully we're going to be making their, their work easier so that rather than trying to deal with just looking at 10 or so dependencies within an application, we can look at the hundred or thousand dependencies that are parts of these massive either monoliths or these massive distributed microservices. Yeah, I saw Dino's keynote a couple years ago when he did it in Asia. And at, at that point, he was talking about how the technology was going to accelerate aspects of the application and the attack surface on the app. Now he's shifted over to the people side because the technology's there. The tools are definitely there, but it's the integration of the tools into the process and leveraging the people. And that's why I think the people process side of this is the interesting part. I think we have some really, really good tools out there that have evolved over the past few years in the space, but it's bringing all those tools together in a way that allows the people to be more efficient and effective in their daily jobs to really understand where is the highest criticality vulnerability? We saw this in the device vulnerability management space over the past few years. Now you're starting to see that concept come into the application side. And when you can understand the app, the components of the app, the criticality of the app, maybe other aspects of the application itself, now I can start to do a better job prioritizing where some of these bugs are so that I can realize, oh, well, there is an active threat in this library, but I'm not using that library. It's not being instantiated. Therefore, I don't have to do anything with it versus the threat that's out there that's being exploited that is in a binary or piece of code that, that has to be addressed, right? And it's, under, it's bringing all those pieces together to just be more effective in our jobs. Yeah, and it's that idea of everybody loves to throw out some type of metric around basically a line that's going up and to the right about the number of vulnerabilities being discovered, identified, announced, the number of CVEs, um, which is a good observation, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all those bugs, you know, that line actually wasn't flat beforehand. It possibly just means we are identifying more of the bugs more quickly, but it also you know, means you can't get overwhelmed by every single bug needs to be, a, you know, fixed at an equal SLA or within it, you know, within an SLA. Because just like you were saying, not all of them are going to be exploited or exploitable. And you do need to stay focused on building software. And why not start to look into the architectures and sandboxing? So the ways that you can minimize the impact in case, you know, a vulnerability does occur. So, and actually that, that made me think too, I'm curious, um, you were hanging out the, the blue team village and it's great to see that being one of the, the villages, of course, in, in DEF CON, I think they're up to at least a dozen now, if not more. Um, but I wanted, I was curious too, um, anything in particular stand out from what was a, a theme or commonality amongst the, the blue team village that you saw? I, I think the interesting part of the blue team village for me is the number of people that were coming over to check out what was going on at the blue team. If I think about DEF CON, I think about it as a red team 
event, right? right. It's where yeah, all the exactly. offensive guys go to learn the latest techniques. Here you have a village dedicated to the blue team. And you have a lot of people coming over really trying to understand how to defend on the other side. And again, I'm a blue teamer traditionally, having done most of my career on the blue team side of the house. I was never a full-blown red teamer. In my early days of consulting, I did pieces of it, but not to what we're doing today on the red team side, right? So I was very interested to see the blue teamers there learning with the red teamers and really understanding. And, and the two interviews I did was actually talking about why the blue team and the red teams need to work together. Because when you go out and hire a red teamer to do a penetration <clears throat> test on your application, the blue teamers need to see the results of that so they can do a better job defending the applications. And, and some of the complaints we see in here is that, yeah, we do this great application penetration test, but I don't see the results. And so I don't know how to fix my processes to better protect the applications. So they want to see a lot more uh, coordination, cooperation between the red and the blue teams. Um, and so I think for red teamers that are out there that are independent red teamers, make sure those results are getting back into those blue teams because those blue teamers really want that data to do a better job. And that was kind of the, the theme out of that village, which, I, which was great to hear. That, that is great to hear. And especially too, you know, I, I kind of add to that in the sense of that red team, you know, it, it's always the idea like, sure, a red team is going to, so to speak, win or red team is going to get in. But I think that's kind of a, 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 a not a great way to characterize that type of approach. The red team should be more focused on testing a process or testing the assumptions that you know, an organization or that the blue team has made, because maybe the blue team says, yes, we do have this capability, detection capability for our production systems in our containers. But perhaps the red team demonstrates, ah, you forgot about this one syscall, or you aren't even being, you are logging all your syscall information, but you're actually not doing any alerting, any monitoring of it, things like that. So those are the types of scenarios that are really just building on what you said, that that's what the blue team needs to hear about. It's really cool often to see, you know, how did, you know, how did a red team get in? How did they compromise or reach, attain a goal? But without explaining the why and the how, as well as a little bit of those insights of what could we have done differently rather than just, we need to patch a bunch of systems. It's, we should have done X or Y differently, and that would have made their team their their approach a lot harder. Yep. Yep, and that's what the blue teamers want. They just want the data so they can do a better job. Exactly. Let's share the data, hack all the things, defend all the things. So, um, any any final thoughts on uh, on the um, on the week or anything else you want to uh, share with us? Should anyone else decide to venture into uh, a week of Vegas for for that slew of conferences? It's exhausting to be prepared. You do a lot of partying. Uh, you potentially miss a flight or two, <clears throat> Paul. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's it, look. There's there's a lot to learn, and it's a great week for people who are in the industry who want to see the breadth. I think B-Sides does a really fantastic job with what it does at the community level. We've got a lot of stuff going on at Black Hat and then DEF CON in the villages. That, that is, it's an intense week for anybody who goes, but for those who can do it, like Jason Albuquerque, who, I mean, was literally there for like 10 days, close to 10 days. I mean, it's exhausting, but he's like, I learned a ton and, and definitely enjoyed the experience. 
That's fantastic. Well, we're absolutely going to be looking forward to the interviews as they come out through a bunch of, through uh, several of the different shows throughout the next couple of weeks. And um, we're also going to happy that your voice survived. We're going to give your voice a quick break um, for a moment, Matt, and we're going to take a quick break ourselves and we're going to return with news of the week. <laughs> 